Hello, and welcome to the latest Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet. The one thing I'm sure we all agree on is how lucky we are to live in such a beautiful county. And one thing which makes Suffolk so special is its beautiful countryside and wildlife. But as we all know, species and habitats are under pressure like never before. So, what of the future? Well, to help find out, my colleague Leslie Dolphin has been to chat to someone who's at the very heart of that debate and spends her working life helping to champion and protect Mother Nature. Well, hopefully you can hear that I've uh, come outside, ventured outdoors for our podcast today. Not the loveliest of days, but it has stopped raining. I'm in Ashbocking. I'm at the headquarters of Suffolk Wildlife Trust with the Chief Executive, Christine Luxon. I persuaded her to abandon the office and we're, we're sitting in your bike shed, I think, aren't we? <laughs> we are sitting in the bike shed. It's very glamorous, Leslie. <laughs> so, it's raining a bit, that's why. <laughs> now, I, I, you've been in post as Chief Exec since 2020, but you've actually been with the Trust for many a year haven't you? I have. Um, I've been here 25 years actually now, which I I was astounded when I realised myself because it doesn't feel that long. Um, I think there's always so, so much going on and you're in your work life and your home life, isn't it? And um, the time just ticks away. Uh, and that, yeah, plenty more still to do, let's be honest. Yeah. So, so was Chief Executive as, a, as opposed to, was that a surprise? Was it a long-term aim? How did it come about? It definitely wasn't a long-term aim. I think I've always... I've sort of thought about it. I've always been really ambitious for the Trust. I've always been really ambitious for nature, but I've never really been personally ambitious. So to be Chief Exec was never on my radar. It was to just do my best for the Trust, and and that's how really it came about, that um, I'd been working for the Trust in the previous role I was I was in was a lot of project development and the fundraising and, and in that you have a real chance to make new things happen make exciting things happen make a difference um, and, and and help sort of steer the strategic direction of the trust and and so when Julian my predecessor decided um, to all our surprises actually that he was he was going to step away um, it, it was it was a moment of me thinking well am I Am I going to step forward and put my money where my mouth is effectively and um, or not? And uh, I decided I, I would. So, you know, it, it, I hadn't been sort of looking at Julian thinking, right, one day I'll, <laughs> I'll step into your shoes or sit in your seat. But when the opportunity arose, I, it felt the right thing to do. Mind you, you picked a right old time, didn't you? 2020, uh, COVID. Well, I did. I mean, that thing about, you know, moving into Julian's desk and stuff, that didn't happen for another year after that. So actually, by the time, um, you know, by the time we did come back to the office and, and, and I was sort of finding my feet, um, I, I think, you know, they're doing that natural transition. COVID was a dreadful time for, for everyone, wasn't it? I think, um, and, and because of that, the organisation pulled together, we adapted, we made changes. And so actually the transition from one CEO to another was actually almost an irrelevance because there was so much else happening. Um, so I guess for me, in, in some ways, that that was a, a, a help in, in what I was trying to do. Um, but it was actually, there was just far bigger things to think about than who's, you know, who's the chief exec, you know. 2021 as well a really important time for the trust 60 years i know it was i mean what a privilege to take on the take you know take the reins as we were heading into our 60th and but also what a shame that all the celebrations that we would have done you know the trust is all about our people you know we've got 
our members, our volunteers, our staff. We've got people who've been supporting the trust, you know, people in their 90s who've been with us since the very, very early days. You know, we'd wanted to take them out, have, you know, tea and scones at our nature reserves, celebrate with around the county, you know, in, in, in a sort of typical trust sort of modest fashion of, um, you know, being out in the reserves. And none of that was able to happen, which was a real shame, but it doesn't, doesn't take away at all from actually what a an amazing organisation we are and that we should be celebrating our 60s you know so um i think we 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 allowed ourselves to delay the celebrations a little and then we were really lucky with Carlton Marsh's opening up in Lowestoft and the new we'd, we'd done an amazing transformation of the reserve up there and bought lots more land and created this phenomenal broadland reserve that, um you know, it was a lifeline for people during COVID, actually. It was a place where people could go to and, and local people could walk to. But we've got the new visitor centre as well. Um, I wouldn't recommend uh, opening a new visitor destination <laughs> during COVID when nobody can visit. Um, but uh, we were able to get the Princess Royal to come and open that for us. So it was it was just at the end, actually, of the 60th anniversary year. So we did manage to fit that in um, and, and allow ourselves to extend the celebrations a little bit into the <laughs> 61st year. <laughs> it, I, I've been looking up some of your history. I mean, your website's brilliant. Uh, you can find out about Suffolk Wildlife Trust today, your future plans, which we'll yeah. talk about, but also some of that history. And, and going back 60 years... Am I right in thinking it started at Redgrave and Lotham Fen? It did. It started at Redgrave and Lotham Fen. And, you know, those people in the early days, they were so far-sighted. I mean, we, it, it's really hard now when nature conservation and we've got big um, conservation charities, we've got lots of community groups, you know, it's embedded in, in how we work. Um, in those, in those early days, that, that, that wasn't there, you know. The, the, and so to step forward and recognise that the effectively what was happening was this internationally important wetland was, was being drained gradually through the borehole that was, was, was taking water to, to the local communities um, and beyond and recognising that what was there was irreplaceable. And so they began a campaign and worked to try and keep water on, on the fence, starting off by... Um, piping water back actually the, the water company did that and ultimately and it was just as I started with the trust one of the first things that I did when I started was the celebration that the borehole was turned off and the um you know and the fen was finally saved when you think it was 60 years ago they started that campaign and it was 25 years ago that the borehole was turned off so it was a long old a long old haul but from that that fight for that first reserve then then Gradually, there were more nature reserves. We did look to Norfolk, I have to say, because Norfolk were a bit ahead of us and seeing the, the Wildlife Trust model that was, that was there. Um, and then gradually more nature reserves were added, more people stepping up, and it's all led, you know, all led by volunteers. And with, you know, we, are, we have such a debt of gratitude to them now because the places that we have now that are our richest in the county are nature reserves. The places that are... You know, as we try to bring nature back and we, we look at what we want to do in the future, we've got these places that are these hot spots for nature that can actually then seed the countryside around them. And, you know, if it hadn't been for people like those volunteers in those early days at Redgrave and people like them across the whole county, they'd have been lost. You know, our little meadows, these pockets. Um, so, yeah, amazing people. And um, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to go back and be a fly on the wall in those early days. <laughs> Rodney, the raft spider, Rodney became raft. very... I mean, he was like the icon of that, wasn't he, as well? <laughs> he was. Rodney was. So um, it's funny, isn't it, how people... 
you know, to get people behind a campaign. And we see it now. You, sometimes you just need a, 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 a sort of an iconic species, I think, and, or a, a something that, pe- that can tell the, the wider story. And Rodney was the story, the raft spider that was found at Redgrave and, and only a couple of other places in the country. And that basically the pools that Rodney needs to, to live on, the fen raft spider, they were gradually getting dried up. And um, with, without, without water, you know, Rodney would be lost and... and um, it's an absolutely phenomenal spider. I mean, if it's, uh, I think, Britain's biggest spider. It's an aquatic spider. It sits on the, uh, when it's hunting, sits on the sides of the pool and can feel the vibrations of, 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 of fish tadpoles, you know, can go and get those. It creates uh, its webs, uh, nursery webs uh, in, the, in the, the reeds along the side and the emergent plants. Yeah. An absolutely, you know, incredible species and, and like so many, really adapted to its environments. And when it's gone, it's gone. So, yeah, good old Rodney, eh? <laughs> and, and we can see uh, um, David Attenborough at the moment, isn't he, is doing his species yeah. about his series about, about uh, UK, the UK and the amazing sights. And, of course, we can see so many of those at your reserves. And looking at your map these days, when you think you started at Redgrave and Loughan Fen, you, uh, is it 50 or so reserves yeah, you have? It's it amazing is. across the county and numbers of people involved. It is. It, the 50 reserves is, is, is amazing. And I think the thing that we have really tried to do um, really over the last 20 years, 15 years, it's really recognised that bigger, bigger sites are more resilient for nature. We are in a changing climate, we, we know that, and, and, and nature's going to have to adapt. So to enable nature to be able to cope with that, you know, there's little tiny pockets of meadows, you know, they're going to really struggle. So we have really, over the last 15, 20 years, really focused on trying to get those nature reserves bigger so buying land along the edges as we've done at Carlton linking up nature reserves so we've got bigger better more joined up places so I think the those dots on the map are really important but you know we need more than just dots don't we we need them to be joined up so nature can move between and and also so that we've got nature next to where people live and that's what I always think is exciting about our 50 sites is there aren't many places in Suffolk where you're not within a you know, a bike ride of a of a trust nature reserve, and we saw that during COVID. You know, nature on your doorstep. We don't want nature to be a day out. It's, you know, almost we've got thinking about to well, what it was like, 1961 when the trust was founded. You know, nature was everywhere then, and we've almost become used to the idea that you get in your car and drive somewhere to see nature. You know, nature being a day out, and we need it to be part of everyday life. We need it for our, we need it for nature, but we need it for our health and well-being as well and and people began to realize that in in lockdown didn't they there was lots of discussion around is the bird song louder this year you know or, or is it just that we all were listening and there weren't so many i mean we can hear cars going past here in airplane and there just weren't to start with were there so nature did for a once actually think wow this must be an amazing world and i know you gave the keynote speech at greenest county awards didn't you and one of the things you said during that speech was how horrifying it is to look back over our lifetimes over the last 60 years or so on and to 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 know how much we've lost in that time i think it is and it's it's a slow sort of insidious loss and so it's almost gone without noticing and you know i i find it quite shocking to realize that in my in my lifetime i'm talking like something like 44 million birds lost from our countryside and just gradually the populations of sparrows are just that little bit less. There's just a few less rooks, a few less yellow hammers. And before you know it, 
you know, everything is, is just a little bit less. But because it's happened gradually and happened over, over several generations, we've accepted that that's normal. So I've got a lovely flock of sparrows in my garden and I'm, I think, oh, that's great, I've got, I've got 20 sparrows. And then I caught myself thinking it the other day and I'm thinking, why, you know, yes, it's exciting, but you should have 100 sparrows here, you should have 200. And I've just got used to that level. Um, and so that's what really we're really focusing on is, is, is that bringing back the, the, bring back more space for nature so that we can have the abundance of nature that's been lost, the everyday species. So, you know, when we're watching David Attenborough, we're celebrating some of those amazing nature spectacles, but it's about the everyday. It's about the fact that we've got um, connected habitat. We've got birds in our hedgerows, you know. We've got rivers that are clean enough to sustain sustain nature that's there around us. That's that's what we really need to achieve um, to, to sort of begin that bringing back nature that we've... That we um, that we really need to focus on, and it's not it's not that we can replace or ever um, sort of think that the ancient woodlands that we've lost or those precious meadows, you know, those those are gone forever. But if we make space for nature and let nature move in and find her feet, there will be something different. But it will be rich and abundant, and it will give us as a society the clean air, the clean water, and the health benefits that we we all desperately need. You're listening to the Suffolk Money Podcast, which is supported by Kingsfleet. And hopefully you can hear that I've come outside today. I'm in Ashbocking. I'm at the headquarters of Suffolk Wildlife Trust with the chief executive, Christine Luxton. It's a, it's a bit of a damp day and it is raining a little bit. We're sitting in the cycle shed, but you can hear lots of birds outside, uh, outside as well. So, Christine... Has, it, has the environment always been important to you? Was it something you were interested in as a young person? Tell me a bit about yourself. I think it was. I think, um, well, I know it was. I, it was from my mum. My mum was a, a country girl. She grew up, you know, at the end of the war uh, in a little village in Worcestershire. You know, her, her, her dad was gardener at the big house. You know, she grew up with Graham, growing their own veg, all those sorts of things. And, um, and then as a child, we lived on a boat. Um, so dad was a boat builder. I think my mum was very tolerant, so I moved to a boat with my two elder sisters, and then and then I came along. But because of that, you know, our uh, our child, my childhood, you know, we, when we were going on holiday, we'd pack away our ornaments and 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 head off down the River Severn, out, out at Gloucester. You get onto the shipping canal, and then you lock out at Sharpness onto the Bristol Channel, and then go down the Bristol Channel along the North Devon coast and it was generally Ilfracombe we ended for and we aimed for and, and I think for me as a child I think what that gave you is um I didn't realize it at the time but a sense of place and a sense of connection you know I was astonished when um I used to run the beavers in Framlingham and where I live now and and, and cubs and I was talking to the children there a little bit we were going to the coast and we were going to go and look at some you know, go on the beach, but we were also going to do a bit of beach combing and things. And I realised they hadn't realised that all the different places that they went to along the beach, so Southwold or Oldborough or Saltness, they didn't realise that they were the coast because they parachute into them by car with their parents and then come about. So they had no sense of of, of what made, where, where they were in the world or how it all worked together. And I think without realising it, I got that as a child. You know, we'd be going down the river and seeing kingfishers and... Um, and then when we moved into the house, you know, we were growing, growing veg and things. So I think it was just 
seeped in. You know, my mum was the original greenie, you know, because she she grew up in a waste-not-want-not era of post-war. Yeah. So, so was, did you decide consciously, is that what you did when you went from school? It was a conscious decision. I think there wasn't in those days, really, nature conservation didn't... It was was in a a growing sector, but, you know, the opportunities that we have now um, and and the sort of workforce, we didn't have those. And I just assumed it would be that I would be um, probably volunteering and, and, and do another job on the side. But my interest was in environmental education. And so, actually, it was through that that I came into... To the trust, um, so I did teach training, uh, and I worked for the wildlife trusts, um, which is our, our we're a federation. We have a, a central charity that runs our children's club, Wildlife Watch, and I worked for them for a little while, and, and then through that got into um, eventually ended up here in Suffolk. So I think it was that, it was that interest that brought me in, and that is still something that for me is central to everything. That nature can live without people people can't live without nature and we so we all have to play our part so when we're thinking about um our the changes we need to make to bring nature back and and the the emergency we're in now it's about all of us playing our part in that so as individuals as communities as businesses uh, and and our politicians you know stepping up and putting the the policy framework in place so people can have you got a a particular passion are you a birder or are you are you a plants person I would say, working with the colleagues that I work with, I wouldn't dare give any <laughs> sense of expertise. I work with people who are uh, just the most talented in skills. You know, I'm, I'm, I would have to call myself a generalist and, and someone who, who relishes being in nature, spending time in nature, um, but recognises the, the, you know, my limitations. Yeah. Did, did you come to Suffolk as a young person then? Or was it work that brought you here? It was a boy that brought me here. <laughs> uh, that, that's uh, you know that's long gone. But actually, you know, I came I came to I came to Suffolk uh, as, as a teacher, and then not long after, um, the the role with the Suffolk Wildlife Trust came up. Uh, and in those days, you know, Suffolk Suffolk's always been a, a really um, forward thinking trust. You know, we've had some amazing people over the years. That you know, the trust that we have now is was, was created by. And recognising that actually getting people on board, taking people with us and investing in the next generation, investing in learning, investing in training. That was something Suffolk Wildlife Trust was really at the forefront of. And so when I joined the trust, I was attracted to the trust because of that culture that was that was there uh, and that I really want to hold on to now, I have to say as well. It's fascinating, isn't it, looking back over the 60 years. As you said when you went off, there were, I don't know whether, I think the University of East Anglia was one of the first environmental science courses and so on. And you look at how conservation has become part, I mean, part of everyday language now, it's accepted, isn't it? So in some ways we have made steps forward. We've made massive steps forward. And, and Otley College, you know, we're just down the road from us where we are here at, at Ashbocking was 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 you know really with one of led one of the the leading conservation courses you know i think the ultimate success would be to the point where really um nature and thinking about the environment is is embedded across everything we do and and not just in our sector, not siloed. So it's something that becomes normal for businesses, becomes when we're thinking about the economy and we think about uh, nature as part of it. You know, I think um, one of the things people perhaps talk about is is 
when we're looking at our, our politicians, we've got lots of politicians who are economists. You know, we haven't got enough politicians who are ecologists. Uh, and really that understanding of the world is a, a finite system. Uh, you know, economy, uh, uh, when we think about economics, it's always about growth, isn't it? But actually we live on a, a planet that is fixed. Uh, and, you know, for me, that, that really would be the ultimate success that the, the nature conservation sector is actually just embedded across what we do. So this is the Suffolk Money podcast and, and much as I love talking about birds and, and seeing the environment, I mean, money is finances as you've worked out for your last 20, 25 years or so with, with the trust is, is hugely important. You have some really faithful followers, haven't you? When you put out big appeals, you get such a response. We get an amazing response from people. And I think it's it's... I always think the, the, the fundraising when we're doing things like buying buying land, so we're, we're fundraising to buy Martlesham Wild at the moment and create an amazing new nature reserve. I always think that actually one of the great things about those it's it's that everybody can put a little bit in and collectively we can achieve something that we couldn't do individually. And and when nature's in crisis, it can feel like what difference can I make? And actually the fundraising, it's. I think it's really empowering and, 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 and giving hope. So, yeah, we've got those amazing, amazing appeals we do, but really what keeps us going and what has built, enabled us to be a stable organisation, giving us stability from year to year as a charity, has been our members. We're a membership organisation. We have members across the county. We've got 4% of, of Suffolk, our, our members of the Trust. So when you think about letterboxes, 4% of letterboxes receive our, our, um, our magazine three times a year. That support from lots of people across the whole county is what gives us um, the confidence and the financial security to be able to plan ahead and say, yeah, we will grab opportunities like Martrish and Wild. We will try big, ambitious things because we've got that, that stability. Um, and, and, you know, when you do these big and exciting things, I think the challenge for us as a charity and for all charities is you, to make sure you don't end up like a like a polo, like a donut, that you've got all the new and exciting stuff around the edge funded and a gap in the middle of the, the stuff that you have to do year on year, day to day, that keeps the place, keeps the organisation running. So, you know, the, the fences around our, our nature reserves, you know, the, the car parks, all the, all the unglamorous bits, but the stuff that enable people to come and enjoy those sites and enable us to, to manage them for, for nature. So, you know, we couldn't do this without our members and we're going to keep growing. We need more people to support us as members, but we need businesses and, and, and us to come on board as well and, and really help us have that ambition for Suffolk. Suffolk's what make us, makes us special. It's the thing that we've all got in common and that shared, that shared ambition and will to bring nature back in Suffolk, I think, you know, that's our real strength. Suffolk's our superpower, isn't it? Because I mean, you are a business, obviously, and at least three million pounds, I think, for day-to-day -day running. Yeah. And then you have, as you say, Martlesham Wilds on top of that, and that's the latest exciting project. But you have loads of volunteers, don't you, as well, who help out on all the reserves. We do. I think, you know, when we're thinking about what makes the trust, you know, what makes the world go round, you know, they say money makes the world go round, but for us it's, it's our volunteers that make the world go round. So we've got about 1,400 volunteers around the county. 
I, I have a sneaking suspicion that may well be an underestimate, to be honest. But people in every community in the county, every parish, every town, every village, in almost every street has got a trust volunteers on there, doing everything from you know working on nature reserves to supporting learning activities. They may be um, championing a species, you know, getting hedgehog streets going, you know, with their neighbours. They they might be supporting us with our fundraising, actually running our wildlife groups you know putting on talks and walks so people get involved at every level and give what they can people give their time and time is so precious to us isn't it you know we're all really really busy so the way that people give their time and give their time so generously is you know it's it's incredible and it's it's it what it's what makes us a charity we're a voluntary organization and it's what keeps us grounded in our communities Tell me, so t- tell me a bit more about Martlesham Wilds, but then tell me a bit more about some of the plans for the future. Because I guess you can't keep growing the land you own, but you can keep growing the brand. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, we certainly won't be able to change uh, change nature's fortune just by owning land. So our ambition is to bring nature back uh, and and to, to to get nature back into places where it's been lost. But that's on our, in our countryside but in our towns as well and we are really championing the, the target of 30% of land and sea and recovery for nature and that's not, that's not just our target that's a, an international target it's a national target it's a target that governments embrace that the county council have really embraced and, and the reason it's set at 30% is 30% has been recognised as the, the tipping point at which in ecological science if we can get to that level nature can function effectively again that we've got uh, the connectivity uh, in our in our in our habitats for, for for wildlife to be able to move through that our floodplains will be able to give the flood protection we need that we'll have the clean air so it's, it's that functioning so that's that 30 percent. that's what we're trying to do but it's not by trying to own 30 percent you know we want to have uh everyone playing their part so that's by you know working with our farmers by trying to you know encourage government to put in farming um farming uh, systems that enable farmers to have the policy to enable them to play their part to enable businesses to play their part communities to play their part and then our nature reserves we, we talked a bit about it earlier are the really really rich hot spots that then can seed recovery into those into those, those other areas and that's what we're trying to do at Martisham Wilds it's it's an absolutely you know, astonishing location. They talk about location, 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 don't they? And Martlesham is exactly that. It's on the, on the banks of the River Deben, um, land that's in, in, in farmland that we're taking out of production and we're going to allow nature to, 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 to take over. I think it was organic, wasn't it? Farmed organically? It was farmed organically. So the, the gentleman who, who, who owned it previously, you know, he had really um, had the foresight to recognise that that nature was at the heart of farming and it had put it into organic as a really early adopter. And as a result, it, as part of that, he had kept you know, incredible hedges, there's some amazing old oak trees there. You know, when um, I was walking around with him and uh, it, was, it, was, it was not long after um, the Queen had died, actually, and we were looking at an oak and he said, we think this oak was probably here in the reign of Charles I, you know, because it's so old, slow growing, and, and we were looking at it thinking about you know, the, the, next, the next era. Um, but he'd, you know, he'd really been a custodian of that land, and so we've got it in good shape to take, 
take it back. But there's, you know, this gorse uh, that's going to you know, burst back onto that that dry sandy land as you as you get in that part of the county. But also there's the uh, the mud flats and the, and the marshes along the banks of the Deben. And we're looking at that and thinking, how is that going to play its part um, as part of an international estuary in bringing back the abundance or giving space for the abundance of the, 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 the bird life that's down there? I mean, the curlews that you get in the evening at dusk, it's just magical. But also thinking about the people who live along there and the, the economics of it with changing climate and rising sea level, you know, we need space for the Deben to be able to flood. Those river walls are going to overtop. We need to be thinking about the role that nature can be playing. So Martlesham Wilds can be part of that with the mudflats and the marshes. So we are really looking ahead and thinking holistically about how that site functions as part of the landscape. Christine, as Chief Executive of Suffolk Wildlife Trust, how positive for the future are you? I have to say little on me you know I do my bit in the garden but uh, you know and I've got sparrows that come into my feeders and, and so on as well but sometimes I just feel it's so hopeless. I, I agree you know I think it can feel like that when you look at the global challenge that we have but I couldn't do this job if I wasn't hopeful. And, I, and we talked about it to David Attenborough earlier. You know, he was somebody who really, he said time and time again, hope is everything. And, and he's absolutely right, because if we lose hope, if we move into despair, actually, we, that's so disempowering. And we, we've talked about how the, the trust has changed over the years and, you know, different ways of thinking about nature conservation. But one of the, the, the mantras, I suppose, that was around when I was a student was, was to think global act local and it's so so true today we are more global society than we have ever been um and if we if we try to change the world it it can be disempowering but if we try to change the world by doing what we can at our local level in our garden in our community so we think global we're connected but we act local then that cumulative impact of all those individual actions that's how we're going to get change it's a bit like we talked about how wildlife was lost little by little we lost those 44 million birds that's how we bring it back little by little everyone doing their bit you know it's not going to be an overnight change it's going to be a collective societal cumulative shift and that's the other big thing for the trust it, when we're thinking about how do we get that 30 percent of land and sea in recovery for nature we talked about it's about what level of community engagement do we need do we need everyone and actually what i found really interesting and has given me hope is that when we look to social science the tipping point for society to shift from nature being something that's on the edge of society and, and, and we'll give it our thought sometime but perhaps isn't important to now to the point of it being a priority and something that everybody really cares about the tipping point is actually only one in four people doing their bit so one in four that's really achievable and that's what's given me hope and the idea of the one in four is when you get to the point of one in four it's that if you think about your front lawn at the moment you know if you're the person who is letting their front lawn grow wild in May, no more May, a big campaign for the, for the pollinators, for the flowers, you're the one who's got, at the moment, other people looking over their garden fence saying, are you going to get the mower out soon? 
when we get to the one in four you've got more people letting their grass grow and looking over the fence to the person who's getting their lawnmower out saying when are you putting your lawnmower away that's the shift and I find it really hopeful that actually one in four is all we need um you know for Suffolk that's a quarter of a million people we can get a quarter of a million people behind nature can't we I mean why wouldn't we it's 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 possible it really is possible um but we have got to do it now because the clock is ticking and that's the bit that scares me the bit that we have seemed to have woken up to the challenges of nature for quite a long time now but we seem society to be able to keep pushing it down the road we need we need our governments to do it don't we because it's all very well me putting a hole in my fence and putting my, my swift boxes up and all those things but we need people guiding the country and the, and the policies to do it as well we do we need the policy framework that is there we're talking about farmers you know farmers farmers want to play their part farmers are stepped up time and time again to whatever the country asks of them so we look back to you know, look back to the war dig for victory farmers step forward when they were told to make bigger fields to mechanize they made bigger fields they took out hedges when they were told to put hedges back in again they put hedges back in farmers want to play their part farmers understand we need healthy soils we need water we're you know we're in a really dry part of the country here in suffolk i um i was really lucky i worked for the royal society for nature conservation in jordan many many years ago now and I used to say to them a country with deserts you know there are parts of Suffolk that get less rain than you do here they couldn't believe it but you know we are we are in a very drought we're in a drought now we're sitting in the rain now but actually we're still in drought we haven't had the winter rains we need farmers know that farmers need and want to work differently we need to give them the policy framework to do that you've got a favorite bit of Suffolk you're probably not allowed favorites but I'm sure we all have (laughs) We're not allowed favourites, you're, you're right. But I, I have to say, I think I really live my, um, my mantra about nature being part of our everyday. And I love the being able to go out from my home in Framingham and go out and walk around the fields near me and watch, watch things, how things had changed over, over, the, over, over, the, over the seasons. But also, you know, the surprises you get every day. So for me... Uh, a couple of weekends ago uh, there was a red kite over the field in, in Fram and it's only recently we've started seeing red kites again haven't we and then I realised there was a buzzard which was exciting and then I looked again and there were two red kites so I began to get quite excited and then suddenly I realised there were four and I had never seen four red kites again and the excitement and the joy you can get from things like that happening on your doorstep um, and um, that for me is 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 what nature's about you know it's about everyday nature so that's christine luxton who's chief executive of suffolk wildlife trust chatting there to leslie dolphin and giving us all food for thought about the future of our species and green spaces and who wouldn't get excited by the sight of not just one but several red kites my thanks to Christine and Leslie, to the team who make the podcasts what they are, that's Joy Day and Sally and Kevin Birch, and my thanks to you for listening. For more information, as always, you can visit our website, suffolkmoney.co.uk, find us on Facebook, and until the next time, from me, Colin Lowe, goodbye. <laughs>